Welcome to Substance Free 02043, brought to you by Hingham Cares in Hingham, Massachusetts. I'm your host, Kristen Arute, and I am Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community. We want our kids to make healthy choices around drugs and alcohol, so we provide information to teens, parents, and the community at large about the risks associated with teen substance use. Our guest today is Amy T. Amy is a comedian born and raised in the Boston area. She's been performing for around 17 years, and she incorporates her personal story of recovery into her routine. So great to have you here, Amy. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So I just want to settle something before we get started. You're a North Shore girl. I am. I'm South Shore born and bred. (laughs) Does the rivalry exist? (laughs) Is it a real thing? I don't know. It's not with me. (laughs) so if we could uh start by having you tell us how long you've been doing stand-up and what drew you to that career path so i'll I'll be have done stand-up now uh it'll be over 20 years in may of 2023 um and i think what drew me to it was i remember in high school watching vh1 stand-up spotlight with rosie o'donnell i don't know if you remember that and i remember like having this feeling i couldn't I can't pinpoint it, but I remember having this feeling. And then I watched Suzanne Westenhofer do her special on HBO probably in the early 90s. Then fast forward about a decade, um, I started doing some improv. And I met a woman named Esther, a dear friend of mine. And she encouraged me to take a stand-up class. She's like, Amy, I think you'd be perfect for it. you got to take it. And it was always a bucket list item. And so I took the stand-up class with her encouragement. And I performed my very first time on stage and I fell in love. And it was like that very first time on stage, getting that first laugh with the the microphone, the spotlight, the, you know, in the, in the audience, it's like everything just was like, Oh yeah, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Like I felt it in my soul. Wow. And so I haven't looked back since. That's fantastic. Yeah. It's when I feel the most alive is when I'm on stage. So I've seen bits of your act online. It's very funny. Thank you. But ironically, and it's funny because you just said that you feel most alive on stage, you say that you're actually very shy in person. I think you even said that at a party, you'd be the one in the corner petting the dog. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) How do you reconcile these two personas? I think with stand-up, right? Like, it's the the perfect persona because I'm on stage by myself. The audience is a safe distance away. They're not supposed to be talking to me. And... (laughs) So I think it's actually, it works out perfect for me, but I can absolutely see why it's, you know, such a juxtaposition for a person. Right. Um, but I, I can't describe it. Like, but if you meet me like in real life, I am painfully shy, quiet to a fault, uh, until I'm like, I warm up into a situation, um, that I can be comfortable in. So how did, how did somebody peg you as a as a stand-up comedian, how these people that were your role models, how did they identify that in you? My friend Esther that I took the stand-up class, because I think it was just something that I wanted to just like pursue. Like I knew it was like a bucket list item that, you know, because it was something inside me that was whispering at me, but I couldn't, I could hear something whispering, but I couldn't make out it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I felt it on stage, it was like, oh, that's what that was. So I knew, you know, it's always been kind of in there. And I think also just, you know, at the time that I started doing stand-up, I was in my late 20s, um, and I was in a different space in my life that I think I was willing to try to 
to throw myself out there a little bit. I had a little bit more self-confidence and um, self-esteem that I felt like, I'll give it a try. And maybe a little, maybe a little ego was in there as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's sort of an interesting segue into my next question. You've said that your childhood is not typical and I've read a little bit about it in some of the other interviews that you've done. Mm -hmm. Certainly was a difficult one. Um, in the world of prevention, we talk about ACEs, which stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. I'm sure you've heard that expression before. It's a metric of sorts that helps identify kids who may have the propensity for substance use disorder or addiction due to a variety of things that they've been exposed to in childhood. Do you think that these ACEs in any way, shape, or form came into play in your life? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, some... And, you know, having lived through all the abuses, substance abuse, mental abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, um, and the trauma that I had up until, you know, probably the last 15 years, 12 years or whatever, I think absolutely um, encouraged some mental health and substance use, right? Like the substance use was the just trying to feel good, just trying to numb numb, numb all that noise and drowned out all that noise that you like, you just want to feel normal or want to fit in. I know like for me with a lot of my drinking, it became that. So like it, it was a, the crutch I needed to be social. Like once I realized what, you know, Oh my God, Amy, you're so funny. And you're so much fun when you've had a couple of drinks, like, Oh, right. Like I'm not the one in the corner <laughs> petting the dog. I'm like, you wanted to, you wanted to be that person. Yeah. It's like, right. I got a lot of recognition for that. Um, you know, a lot of positive reinforcement when I was fun, Amy and kind of wild and crazy. In contrast though, to fun, Amy, you had some real challenges in high school. Um, yeah. So you talk about how you were overweight during your teen years, you battled depression, you were bullied. Um, how did that impact your self-esteem and then sort of later choices in life during that really influential time period? Right. Like imagine graduating high school at nearly 300 pounds at that time, struggling with your sexuality, right? You can't just be out. It's not, wasn't as, uh, accepted as it is now. Um, and, you know, just struggling with that, hiding that because you can't possibly do that when you're nearly 300 pounds being voted most likely to be obese, like, yeah, like how you just like beaten, right? Like you just, it's just coming at you from every angle. So of course, self-esteem and defense mechanism right. and just like, just pain every day, like just trying to fit in with your peers and you just don't. It's terrible. It's just terrible. It was horrible. In addition to the experiences that you had when you were younger, sort of built upon that when you were going through your high school years and then you reach your 20s and you kind of blossom a little bit I guess for lack of a better term you start exploring these things putting yourself out there in ways that you didn't think that you would before and I if I if I read correctly you didn't actually start using substances until you were in your 20s is that correct yeah for sure um yeah I would say early 20s like 23, 25, um, when I started really drinking, but, um, yeah, things kind of turned around when I lost a hundred pounds, that would, I would say would be another, um, benchmark for me. And I don't care what anybody says. People treat you differently when you're overweight and when you're not, 
Um, they look at you differently. They treat you differently. And now that I'm like 100 pounds lighter, 130 pounds to be exact, people were treating me different. You know, uh, I was being noticed more by by boys and girls. Um, and that was a weird thing. I couldn't wrap my head around that for a lo the longest time because I was still the same person inside. So what is making it different? And it was weight. So then, so it was like this new sense of confidence, a newfound sense of confidence that I had that I was able to feel like I could go pursue some of the dreams that I had in my life. You know, I started doing some modeling in South Beach and that's when I started doing stand-up. Uh, I made a movie. I walked the red carpet with other celesbians. The Boston Globe named me a rising star. Like, I was on fire. But all the stuff that was in the basement that I'd pushed down was still there. Right. I think I started, you know, drinking in, when I was in a relationship with my ex-wife. You know, it just became our normal. It was Tuesday. It was after a softball game. You know, Mm -hmm. It was at dinner time. It was just like what we fell into. Right. And then now being in the nightclubs and bars four or five nights a week doing comedy, it's your job. And then I just realized, yeah, having a couple of drinks made it a little bit easier to get up there and do what I love. Although I was never drunk when I got on stage. It was usually after was, was the socializing with people, which made it a little bit easier, you know, and you didn't realize, like, and that's what was so bad. Like, you have no idea how much ego and arrogance is in a bottle of gin, you know? When did you discover that it was a problem for you? When did it become a problem? What was your first kind of moment of saying, I think maybe I'm getting too carried away here? Probably, yeah, right, I lost my first wife. Um, but I would say losing relationships, um, you know, it was, but I, I kept just chalking it up to, like, I'm living this kind of, fun lifestyle. I was traveling the country doing comedy. I was in film festivals. Like I had like a, a huge ego and very grandiose idea of who I was at that time. Um, and I just kind of was just living a lifestyle. Um, and I think people had kind of mentioned it along the way and I was like, Oh, but I don't drink every day. I just drink, you know, so you were a, a quote unquote functioning I think so. Yeah. And then alcoholic. Right. And I definitely, I can be honest now and be like, I was definitely hiding it. You know, like mm. I was definitely hiding how much I was drinking. I'm like, Oh, I only had two drinks, but you forgot the four that I had before I left the house. And, or the one that was probably in the car that was in a, a, a soda can or something. There's a lot of uh, dishonesty and denial that goes along with the illness. Shame. Shame yeah. and embarrassment, of course. Um, right. And, and you never want to admit that's what it is. You know, of course, countless nights of not being able to, or like waking up the next morning and being like, how did I get home? There's a lot of things, but I would say was with my last relationship when she left me um, was when I was like, oh, wow, this is this is real. And the relationship ended as a direct result of you using alcohol. Okay. Yeah. My alcohol, my mental health, which I didn't know my mental health at the time, but I can look back now, but yeah, alcohol for sure. Right. For sure. But it was a different person. So all these events are sort of leading up to your final aha moment. What was that final moment? April 17th, 2010, I woke up, passed out in a strange New York city apartment in the fireplace. Um, I had done a show in New Jersey the night before and had no idea how I got into this apartment or the fireplace. And at that point, I think, like, I can't remember exactly, but a week or two before that, my car had just been repossessed. 
I was $72,000 in debt. I had gained more than 60 pounds back and like, yeah, like not remembering from the show to now in this apartment and yeah, I was just like, this is. That's scary. Yeah, it's dangerous. dangerous and scary. And right. I got an earful from my ex-girlfriend because apparently I'd called the night before and didn't remember anything. And yeah. And so I was like, Oh, something, something's got to give. And I, I just, I literally like remember just shaking my head being like, I was financially and emotionally bankrupt. You know, like I had no reason to want to live anymore. My business, my relate, my relationship was gone. My business relationships were gone. My career was heading down. Like I wasn't as popular as I had once been probably two or three years prior. Um, and that was definitely obvious. So let's talk about when you, you hit rock bottom and you went to, you didn't seek help in a formal way. You didn't sort of do it the conventional way. What did you do to start your road to recovery? So uh, prior to hitting my rock bottom, I had dated four women, all in the mental health related field. Oh. Right. Like not. Not coincidental, I'm sure. uh, Well, the universe was trying to tell me something, I think. Um, Right. But like, I don't want to be like, they weren't at the same time, but they might have overlapped. (laughs) But. So after I, I got home from New York, I just was not in a good way and didn't feel like I needed to do this any longer. And my mom had found me the next day and begged me to get her help. And I was like, I don't want, I don't want to do this. Like I heard some horror stories of the mental health field from previous girlfriends. Mental health was not ever in my vocabulary prior to that. And so I was like, no way, I'm not going to a hospital. You are not sending me for help. I want no part of this. And the compromise was we had a family friend that was a therapist and I agreed to go see them um, because they knew me. They knew me since I was 12 years old. They knew my back history. They knew the story with my dad. They just knew enough about me that I felt like if I had to go in and talk to somebody, there was a, they had some background knowledge uh, and I didn't have to start from the beginning. So I think that's for me was important because there was a trust there right from the beginning. And I think that's why it worked was because, you know, the information that she was giving me and diagnosing me with, I believed her. And when she referred me to a psychiatrist for, you know, medication, I trusted that process. And, uh, and I think also at that time too, like I was just so exhausted and numb that I just couldn't fight back anymore. Like I had nothing left to give and everything that I'd been doing up until that point was wrong something had to give. Uh, so that, that's kind of how the journey started. So it was that, that frightening moment where you woke up in New York and then your mom expressed concern about your condition, but we weren't talking about mental health specifically at that point, right? It was really this, this substance use that opened the door to that conversation about mental health. I think so, yeah. Cause right. I had wanted to take my own life. So uh, I think that, you know, that I don't, even my mom didn't know, I think the extent of my substance use at that point. Um, wow. so I think the whole experience was very eye opening cause I did a really good job at hiding a lot and masking a lot. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it was like a switch, you know, I'd come home and there would be days that I was just so depressed and like, I just was like literally debilitated where I couldn't get off the couch 
Um, but and I'd have a show, and it was like a light switch. Like, got to turn it on. We got to go. You got to go to work. You got to go do your thing. And so you just kept like just moving past whatever it was that you were feeling, pushing it down. So did the did the stand up help with your recovery process, or did it hinder it somehow? Like, what's what's your relationship with your stand up persona in terms of your recovery? So at the beginning, it was really challenging because now. I, now I'm now thinking about, it, I get sober and now I have a diagnosis. Uh, so for the first 10 years, you know, eight years, 10 years of doing comedy, I am this character that I mm-hmm. had written about, um, you know, being married and divorced and all these other things I used to do jokes about. And now I'm not any of those things anymore. And I also am not drinking, which is frightening to get back mm-hmm. on stage again. And uh, I had a really difficult time getting back on stage and I would cancel shows cause I'd have these panic attacks of like, Oh my God, people are going to talk to me. What am I going to do? How am I, what am I supposed to do? I can't do this. And I would like spin all week long about this. And, um, and I remember one day I was on my way to a show and I couldn't do it. I couldn't drive. I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. And I got in my head about it. And I called my booker and I was like, I can't do this, Rob. I can't do it. And he's like, damn it, Amy. He's like, I was counting on you. You know, like literally the show was probably an hour, hour and a half, you know, before showtime. And I was like, I can't do it. And I just remember him being so angry and disappointed at me um, that it like stopped me for a second. And I was like, wait a minute. You know, I had to have like another aha moment, right? Like, wait a minute. Like, the, the microphone, the stage and the spotlight used to be my drug of choice. That's what used to like, you know, get me up in the morning and that's what I want to do. And now I'm not doing that and I'm letting a panic attack stop me from doing something that I love. Um, so I had to kind of like just change the frame a little bit and really mm-hmm. work really hard at navigating that. And so I, I did, I, I would be like, all right, showtime is at eight. I get there at 10 of. And I will do my set and then I leave and then stay a little bit longer and then, you know, get back to navigating the unknown because each new experience, each time getting back on stage was like a new experience again. And I did a lot of inventory too, of like taking venues out of my, 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 my schedule that no longer served me a purpose. You know, there was some, there was some venues that just didn't, I didn't need to be at. Nobody wants to see a big old lesbian at a NASCAR bar. It's not fun for me, not fun for them. So why, why put myself in situations that are not going to fulfill me? So I did a lot of inventory in that, in that regard too, of like what is going to serve a purpose of continuing this career. And then had to do a ton of writing um, because now the material didn't fit anymore. I didn't feel comfortable. You needed new content. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't fit the person that I was. Matter of fact, I was embarrassed at the material that I did before that. Um, very humbling actually. And, um, so I had to write about what I knew and sobriety and this journey of getting diagnosed with a mental health, um, diagnosis was current and that was what was happening right then and there. And so it kind of just went from there, which was so cathartic because I was writing as, as it was going and laughing about some of the trauma uh, that was happening because that's my way of coping is humor. So like mm-hmm. being able to like, you know, week after week, go to the, the therapist and, you know, heal some of this trauma. Well, we got the, you know, there's always comedy and tragedy. So 
Right. I think it helped speed up some of the process and now I'm better for it. So it was, it was a form of, it was an additional form of therapy almost. Absolutely. A hundred percent. And like then getting involved, like with the National Alliance of Mental Illness and speaking for them with the, you know, um, in their inner own voice program and then becoming a peer specialist and a mentor. And now that's what I do during the days. I'm a peer and recovery coach for a, two different diagnosis treatment programs. It's like, it keeps you accountable. It keeps you one foot in front of the other just by being in it and leading by example. It sounds like you're very in tune with yourself. You're very intuitive. You're very good at listening to what works for you, what doesn't work for you. I think that's a real gift for you to be able to to uh, to shed some of these venues that didn't work for you, to for you to be able to kind of ease your way back onto the stage, you know, sort of on your own terms, in your own comfort level. Did your therapist help you with that? Or was that really you just listening to some sort of inner voice? I was, honestly, I think it was a little bit of me, definitely some of my wife. Um, I started, mm -hmm. you know, getting involved in Buddhism and that spirituality practice Oprah was like church on Sundays, Brene Brown, like, you know, just anything that was just filling like positivity and um, filling my soul with good language and good information um, that's useful. That's a nice little segue into my next question. You've, you've been managing both your sobriety and your mental illness for 12 years now, right? Yes. Congratulations. That's Thank an you. amazing accomplishment. Recently, you gave up your prescription that you had been taking for your mental health diagnosis. What What's in your toolbox now? What are your coping mechanisms? I wouldn't say it's so recently. Um, it's like been seven and a half years now that I've been, Oh, okay. just, okay. just for clarity um, of how long that I have not been on meds. Um, first and foremost, it starts with gratitude every day, all day, and filling my life with as much joy as possible. So looking ahead at my day, how do I fill it with joy? Oh, I'm recording a podcast tonight. Uh, I have a job that I love. I surround myself with people that bring me value. I have a anti-anxiety playlist on my phone. Um, so I have music that I can turn on in, uh, in, in a pinch. I don't do things that are not going to serve me a purpose. So grocery store, the bank, the post office. I don't like to do any of those. Um, <laughs> I will, but it usually takes a good two, three to five business days for me to wrap my head around having to do that. Um, but I, yeah, I would say it really does start with gratitude. Uh, and then from there, it's other little things. I mean, this stuff that I just know about myself, I need to have order in my closets. You know, my, my shirts and clothes need to go from, they need to be, all be all white hangers and the shirts need to hung from white to black. Like, you know, like things that I know, like I need to have like structure, routine, very important to me. Um, I know what's going to happen every minute of my day. It's planned for. I don't do things that are going to give me overwhelmed. So I make short to-do lists. All right, what needs to be done by the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month? In, the, in three months, six months, where do I want to be at the end of the year? Four months a year, I do inventory on my vision board. Like, where am I at? Where are my goals? What do I have, you know, for projects coming up or what, 
you know, deadlines do I have mentally for myself that I want to keep myself accountable for? And then just living like one of my things is just being responsible for the energy I bring into the world. So I'm constantly just trying to make sure that my energy adds joy to somebody else or value or I never want somebody to have a bad day because of me. Like I'm not going to lose my mind at Dunkin' Donuts if they make a mistake on my coffee. Like they're just doing the best they can. You're not going to, you're not going to get me pissed off if you cut me off in traffic because maybe you didn't see me and we've all made mistakes. Like I try very hard to, and that's 12 years in the making. That's not like overnight, right? Like it's 12 years of continuous practice. And I would say that's what it's been is a practice wasn't, you know, out the gate. I was like, Phew, I am cured. But it's been over the last 12 years that I've put each and every one of these things into practice um, on a daily basis that I, I feel like it's like riding a bike now to, to live my life. And I have an amazing wife too, right? You know, that is a psych nurse. So it's like in home care without the copay every day. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. You bring your act not just to uh, the comedy stage, but you also speak to high schools, you speak to colleges. What, what is some of the messaging that you do, in addition to the sort of lighthearted spin, what's some of the messaging that you do with younger people? I remember being like, right, like when we were in high school and you're being bullied and you're just like, that's kind of stuff like is happening, like prank calls, or you're just being called names all the time or thrown into a locker or whatever. And you think that's the end of the world, right? Like, that's like the worst thing that's going to possibly happen in your life. And you think it's, it is oh, pretty, it's horrible. It is pretty painful. It's horrible, it's horrible for sure in the moment. And, but it doesn't, I guess I would say like, it doesn't last. Like you want it, like it gets better. And then you want to like, at the same time, you want to bring that message of like, don't be that person to somebody else. Like, you, you know, you might be hurting, right? So I know, like, for me, I, I was hurting in high school, so then I, it made my defenses go up. And so maybe I was an angry person or I was mean or I, I'm, I can't, I, I wasn't all, you know, an angel in those situations because I went into attack mode, right? It was fight or flight. So I can't say that I was probably the nicest human being either, um, which perpetuated a ripple effect, looking out for each other as like human beings and kindness is really goes a long way. And sometimes it's just, it's not going to matter in one year, five years. Right. Everything seems so in the moment, it just seems so intense and it's hard to see the forest for the trees. So yeah, like trying to have that long-term perspective. Yeah, emotions and situations are temporary. They'll keep, mm -hmm. it keeps moving. They keep flowing. So take a beat. Take a breath. That's great advice. That's really great advice for adults too. Absolutely. For yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you have anyone that you could confide in? Were you close with your mom? I had a funky relationship. Um, I don't think I really ever had someone that I fully trusted until I met my wife that I felt like I could be honest with. So you spent your childhood going through all of these difficult experiences and keeping it to yourself, basically. Yeah, because I really didn't have a friend group. Um, mm. And I think some of the stuff that goes on in your head, you're like, I don't think you should probably say that out loud. Right? <laughs> you know? Like, right. <laughs> doesn't, I don't think, any, I've never heard anybody else talk about that. So maybe I should probably hold that in. Right. Because it just wasn't, it just wasn't common, common language as, as much as it is now, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later. Right. 
So you just kind of soldiered through. I would, yeah, I would say that. Have any kids come up to you afterward when you're done speaking at a college or a high school and shared their own personal experiences or something that you've said that's really touched them? All the time. And I'm sure uh, all the time. And even like, even just in like stand up shows, even if I'm in Boston or Manchester or, or anywhere in around the country, somebody inevitably will always come up to me after my show and be like, thank you so much for talking you know, so candidly about this, my mother struggles, my brother, my aunt, my daughter, whatever. And it was like, it's relatable to them, or I'll get messages after shows or whatever. But when I think, I think back of one that I remember doing a, a talk at a college and fast forward, maybe two, three years later, she came to one of my shows and, and she had been in like, I remember this, oh my gosh, she had been in and out of the hospital like 15 times. It was like this really like, oh, I remember like after hearing, after, I was, after speaking with this girl, I think I was doing a NAMI show, uh, a NAMI talk, an inner own boys talk at a psych hospital. And just to clarify, NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, correct? Exactly. And they have this program called inner own boys and you'll go to hospitals, colleges, you'll talk to corporate people on your story of uh, of recovery with mental health diagnosis and how you can support your loved ones and and so on. So I remember going to the psych hospital and fast forward, you know, two or three years later, she came up to me after a show. And I remember leaving there, like just what this kid had been through and how many hospitalizations that she had been through. I just was like, wow, like the resiliency that she already had. She was maybe Mm. 17 and she was like, look, I'm doing this. I graduated. Like, that forever will be one of my favorites. Because you were a role model for her. That's, that's pretty cool. It's hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for her to, to feel proud and comfortable going to someone like you who had kind of gone before her and had these experiences, that's, that's really cool. That's very touching, very personal. Mm-hmm. And it, I would imagine that it makes, kind of takes the edge off some of your own personal experiences when you see that, that you sharing your experiences has had a positive impact on other people. It's, the, it's part of the purpose, right? Like, okay, so there was a, there's a reason mm. for this. What was the reason? I remember even thinking about that when I got sober and I got into my mental health, they're like, all right, all right, universe. Tell like what, why, why did I have to get up until this point and like, you know, near death? What's, what's the purpose of all of this? And, you know, what I've found in the last 12 years is to brought Vaughn. That was one of the things that I thought of. I'm like, oh my gosh, if I have been living like this for the last 20 something years, how many other people are walking around in the world feeling like this and struggling and not, not knowing what to do with themselves about it? Uh, so there's got to be like more of me out there. And that's how I got involved with the National Alliance of Mental Illness. Like, all right, how do I, how do I fix this? How do I cure this? How do I help other people with this? Um, mm. So that it wasn't for no reason. Like there, there's got to be a bigger, right. bigger picture in this. And, and clearly like I've made, you know, I've turned my stand-up career around on it. I now have a full-time career uh, that I absolutely love. All, all because I had this journey to begin with. If you had to come up with a particular piece of advice for parents, caregivers, anyone working with, with children, with young people, what would that advice be? 
and you can speak to it as an adult now. That's hard. That's hard. I'm, I was thinking when I was thinking about like my niece and my nephew. Uh, I I'm, I was I was an only child, so I didn't have any kids around me. I didn't really grow up with any kids around me, and um, mm-hmm. we just we have a two year old nephew, and my niece just turned six. And I I, I think about like just curiosity with them being curious, um, and patient, curious and patient, I think is probably the best advice because they don't, they don't know stuff yet and they're learning and they're observing and they absorb everything around them. Um, so they absorb energy. They, they have feelings, uh, they can, Mm -hmm. they can sense energy, I think more than we probably give that credit to. Uh, so I I would think, yeah, some patience and some curiosity. And sometimes it gets a little more challenging as they get older. So that patience is a that's a real critical <laughs> skill to practice when they're young. You know what another one is? Talking about emotions. I just learned recently because I was been watching Brene Brown, Atlas of the Heart, and how many emotions that we have. And you know, she asked the questions like, "How many emotions do you think we have?" And I thought, I thought five, right? Like happy, sad, angry, like five emotions. But we have like seventy-five emotions. Wow. So there's like the spectrum there's variations of happy yeah there's a spectrum of happy there's a spectrum of sad and maybe um i think that's a good thing to explore with kids or teach them that it's not just like i'm angry no it's like you can be disappointed you can have all these other things in between so it doesn't seem so cut and dry and so um so big right well, I love what you talked about earlier about, you know, if somebody cuts me off in traffic, I don't get angry. Maybe they didn't see me. If somebody screws up my order at Dunkin' Donuts, then maybe they're just having a bad day. I love that whole concept of giving people the benefit of the doubt and giving our kids the benefit of the doubt, you know, kind of trusting them and trusting them with things and, mm-hmm. you know, not, not assuming things that might be a little more negative. Right. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This has been a really great conversation. You're such an inspiration to so many people. I've, I love the fact that you've made time in your busy schedule to have a conversation. Thank you very, very much um, for inviting me to be here. I really appreciate it. Well, I know it takes a lot of work to get to where you are, not just career-wise, but in terms of your <laughs> sobriety and in terms of taking care of your mental health. So I applaud you for that. You're such an inspiration. So I'm excited to have you as a guest. Thank you so much. And just tell me, where can people find out more about you? You can find me on uh, experimentalcomedy.com, our ECT. Uh, that's uh, to how I rebranded myself about a decade ago, ECT, right? Uh, the acronym for electroconvulsive therapy. Um, oh, yes. But oh, uh, ECT is the acronym of how I try to live my, my life. Um, be responsible for the energy you bring into the world and practice compassion and tolerance. Thank you again for joining us, Amy, for this thoughtful conversation. You have been listening to Substance Free 02043 brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Root, and I hope that you will join us again. For more info or to get involved, go to hinghamcares.org.